So let's pray together the prayer of illumination that's printed in your worship guide uh, to help us as we go to God's word this morning. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be going through 1 John together as a church this spring. And last week uh, and this week, we're going to be going through 2 John and 3 John, which is going to be introducing us to some of the topics that were, are going to be present in 1 John for us. Also, as I mentioned last week, one thing to keep in mind as we go through all of these books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is that they are written in the context of false teaching that has been spreading throughout the early church, uh, specifically teaching about who Christ is. In 2nd John, we saw that there were those who went out from the church and were teaching particularly um, that Christ hadn't come in the flesh. And we see that that has massive implications for what we believe about who our God is and what salvation is and how we're to receive salvation. Um, So that's going to be important again for us as we're in 3 John and something to keep in mind for the rest of the spring as we're going through 1 John. Uh, 3 John is a book that is really similar to 2 John in a lot of ways. You're probably going to recognize a lot of language that's very similar from last week, particularly language about truth and love and the concept of walking in truth. But there are a couple important differences for us to note before we go uh, to 3 John this morning. First, 2 John was written to a church saw that the elect lady in Second in John is a church that John is writing to and is getting, giving instruction to. And Third John, on the other hand, is written specifically to a named individual, a man by the name of Gaius. And although it was written to him and to an individual, we have to understand that John would have intended this letter to be circulated through the church. It was, it was circulated around different churches throughout the Roman Empire and was in use in teaching there, which is actually how it got included in our New Testament. So although it's written particularly for an individual in a particular circumstance, I think that we as a church can look at it and apply the principles that we see there. Second, Second John also focused primarily on guarding the truth. And Third John is going to focus more on the other side of that. It's going to focus on an example of what this mutual love that we saw in Second John looks like in action and in the church. And for that reason, 2 John focused on how to deal with false teachers, how to deal with people that would come into the church and teach us false things about Christ. And it specifically said that we're not to welcome those people, we're not to support those people, lest we become a partner in what they're doing. 3 John is going to focus primarily on partnering with people who are teaching the truth. So if, if you see, 2 and 3 John are really two sides of the same coin. We don't want to partner ourselves with those who teach, teach falsehood. But we want to and need to as a church support and partner with those people that teach the truth. Both of those concepts go hand in hand. And if we forget one or the other, uh, we're in danger as a church. So with that said, let's go to God's word and we're going to see what he has to teach us there. Again, we're going to be in 3 John this morning. That's on page 1026 in your pew Bibles. I'll give you a moment to turn there and then we'll read. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. 
Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us from your word. As we've already prayed, we ask that you'd help us to hear your word, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word. We're always dependent on you to speak and to reveal your truth to us. So we ask that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit as he illuminates your word this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. No person is completely original. We should see that humans are completely incapable of anything that comes close to total originality. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the way that the world works. We can innovate as humans, but even the best human innovation flows out of work that has already been done. The best of human originality has its foundation in the things that have gone before. Really, as humans, we're all imitators. We're all imitators of other people. And imitation isn't always a bad thing. When a boy sees his dad loving his mom well, he can learn how to love uh, his wife someday, how to be a loving husband. I can tell you that I learned a lot about how to love Lexi by watching my dad's selfless and and gentle love for my mom growing up. Uh, But if if we're honest, imitation can cut both ways. We can learn how to live what to love. Um, We can learn so many different things by imitation, but at the same time, we can also learn sinful habits. We can learn harmful things, and and some of those things perpetuate themselves in families as people imitate things in, in their parents. And sometimes those chains of imitation can be very hard to break in families and in societies, but they can truly be broken. And when it, when it comes to imitation and in our use of Scripture, when we, uh, we have to be really careful, I think. There's this habit sometimes that we have to go into Scripture merely to look at every human character to either find a good example or a bad example. And then we get messages that are purely just be like David or be like Abraham 
or don't be like Jezebel, or don't be like Judas. And that's all that scripture gets reduced to is this moral examples that are laid out before us that we're, that we're supposed to imitate. So we have to be careful about just not, not making scripture only that. However, John himself in this book specifically invites us to consider the examples that are set before us, particularly as they relate to partnership with other believers in the gospel. So if you look at verse 11, John directs his readers not to imitate evil, but to imitate good. And we're going to be looking this morning at an example, a good example to imitate and an evil example to avoid. As John's letter centers kind of around two main people, Gaius, uh, the man to whom the letter is addressed, and another leader in the church named Diotrephes. One of John's methods of teaching in 3 John is imitation. Don't be like these people, but be like this. Last week, we saw that truth is foundational for mutual love in the, in the church, that if we lose truth about who Christ is, if we lose the gospel, we actually lose the love that we want to have in the church, that we can't have love if we don't have truth. And here again, truth and love are centrally important to what John's going to say to us. And I've already said a lot of this language is almost identical to 2 John, uh, when in relation to truth, uh, truth and love particularly. Second John begins, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And third John begins almost the same exact way, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The only thing that's changed there is who the letter is addressed to. So again, we have this connection between love and truth. In second John, in the introduction, John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And in third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This inseparable connection between truth and love in the Christian life is again emphasized. And in 3 John, we're going to see truth and love manifesting itself in a particular example of what mutual love looks like in the church. And that's partnership and fellow work in the gospel. As we look at the positive example and the negative example that's going to be laid before us, we're going to see the main idea of this book. Since Christian truth and love lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must come together to pursue God's glory. If you're taking notes, again, it's since Christian truth and love lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must come together to pursue God's glory. And we're going to start off with the positive example in the person of Gaius. And here we're taught that since Christian truth and love lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must support those who teach the truth. Again, God's people must support those who teach the truth. The first thing that we learn about Gaius is that he's an individual who's living out the exhortations that we saw in 2 John. He's a Christian who's rooted in truth and he's walking in truth. And I love here, I love that John says that he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in truth. He's calling Gaius his child, which is neat. Um, and when he, when he does this, when he's meaning that, that either Gaius became a Christian, he was converted through hearing the, the preaching of John, or that John was uh, a big part in Gaius' discipleship and in his growth and maturity as a Christian. So Gaius, in a way, is, is John's child. John has poured himself into Gaius. 
And he, John's joy in Gaius is not just found in the fact that he became a Christian. I think sometimes we, we get so excited just about when people become a Christian that we forget that we are at the same time supposed to desire their growth and maturity. Those two things can't be separated. We can't just say, yeah, I want to save your soul, but then whatever happens, happens. John's love and desire for Gaius leads him to, to delight in his growth and maturity. And Gaius, when this letter is written, it's, he's most likely already a leader in the church. And John delights in hearing that this has happened, that he has grown in his maturity since he had last met him. Last week, we saw that after establishing this connection between truth and love, John exhorted the church to love one another. And that was kind of the basis for our confession of sin this morning. And this type of mutual love is perfectly exemplified, at least from what we see in the passage, in, in the person of Gaius. Some traveling preachers or missionaries, they're called the brothers in this letter. Um, they had visited Gaius's church, and now they went back to where John was, and they brought a good report to John about Gaius, which is how John heard about Gaius's maturity and his growth, and also how he heard about his love. So look with me uh, to verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. So even though Gaius, Gaius didn't know these brothers personally, he demonstrated a deep Christian love and hospitality toward them. So while these brothers, these traveling preachers, were in his church, he provided shelter for them. He provided food for them. He partnered with them and supported them in their work of the gospel. And John encourages Gaius to continue supporting such men. He says, continuing in verse 6, to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And to send them on their journey was to provide for their needs as they traveled out from the church, as they traveled to other churches. It was uh, supplies, but it also probably would have been financial support for their journey. And he was to do this, to provide the support in a manner worthy of God. I want us to look at that for just a moment manner worthy of God and how he was supposed to send them out. In the ancient world, uh, you would host a visitor or ambassador from a person, and you would host them in a way that reflected the position of the person who sent them, not just the position of your visitor. So if, if you mistreated an ambassador from a high official who came to you, you were insulting the high official that, that sent them. The way you treated a guest was always uh, rooted in, in the way that you understand and, and respected the person who sent them. So Gaius is, is commanded to, to support these people in a manner worthy of God because God is the one who has sent them. They are ambassadors for God himself. And this is instructive for us. When we support missionaries or we support ministers, those who teach truth about the gospel, we don't just support them in a manner that is worthy of them as a person. We're supposed to support them in a manner, of the wor- that is, a manner that is worthy of the God who sent them. Uh, the way we support people, the way we support preachers of the gospel is directly related to what we believe about God and what we believe about the service that we're supposed to render to God. Our support for missionaries and ministers is an act of worship to God. John continues uh, in verse sec- uh, 7 that they, uh, these brothers have gone out for the sake of the name. This is uh, very unlike those people in 2 John who went out and were teaching false things about Christ that were distorting the gospel message by distorting who their understanding of, 
of Christ's word, these brothers in 3 John are faithfully preaching Christ. They're faithfully teaching uh, the gospel. John also says here that they accept nothing from the Gentiles. Uh, And our understanding of the Gentiles here is not just those who are not Jews, because there were Gentile believers. He's particularly using this word here to refer to pagans or to those who are outside of the church. So he's saying these these brothers don't receive any help from the world. They're completely dependent upon fellow Christians for their support. And for, for these two reasons, one, that they are teaching the truth, and second, that they're completely dependent on Christians and fellow Christians for their support and their livelihood, John says, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And I like that he says we, because he's talking to Gaius here. But it's not just a command to Gaius to support these people in a manner that is worthy of God. He uses the word we. It is something that is a command for all of Christians. Raising financial and material support for missionaries and teachers isn't a recently invented idea. And it's our duty as Christians and as a church to support people like these. When John says ought, it's not something that's optional. It's not like yeah, I really should, should go work out. I ought to work out. Maybe I should. It's an optional thing. No, when he says ought, it's a command. God has given a command to his people to support missions work and to support teachers of the gospel. And it's not something that he leaves as optional. It's not something that you can opt out of. But notice, too, that he says that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Support for missionaries and for ministers, those who do the work of God in the church and in doing evangelism in the world, we support those people. It's really partnership with them. You become a fellow worker with that person for the truth. And I want you to notice that and think about what that might mean. It's not just support. It's partnership in the gospel. It's being a fellow worker for Christ. So I've always known that movies take a lot of people to produce. Any of you that have sat to the end of a movie to see if there's this bonus clip at the end of the credits knows exactly what I'm talking about, talking about here. Uh, maybe like me when, I, when, you, when you're growing up, or maybe you still do this because I still do, uh, when you watch the credits at the end of a movie, you look for the amount of people and you try to count how many people have the same name as you. And for me, that was never the last name because I've never seen anybody in a movie credit that had the last name Lima because it's really not a common name. So I'd count all the people whose name was James. Or maybe you'd watch the credits and you'd try to see what the most unique name was on the list. And if you've done that, you know that those lists go on forever. They're insanely long. The credits for the last Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King, was over nine minutes long. Over nine minutes of just watching credits. And if you sat through that, I commend you. That is incredible. Um, and if, if I was to guess how many people uh, are on the longest list of credits for a movie, I probably would have said a few hundred. But it's actually 3,310 for Iron Man 3. 3,310 people in the credits for a single movie That's almost the population of Amro, in case you're wondering. The producing of a movie takes an incredibly large amount of people. And usually when we think of a movie, we only think of the famous actors. Uh, Like, I actually can't think of any actors. I I don't know, Robert Downey Jr. I don't know actors. I'm sorry, I'm not into all of that, but whatever. 
Maybe you think about the director, like Steven Spielberg, right? He directs stuff. Um, if you're in my family, though, you pay attention to the composer of the film score. It's a thing in my family where we just listen to movie music all the time. But instead of just thinking about those people, the, the famous actors and the directors and the, if you're weird like my family, the, the composer, um, the, it really takes a massive team effort to produce a movie. And it takes a team effort of people that have a massive variety of skills. I, I, can't, I don't even know what half the people do when you look at that list and it describes different, different positions and that they're working with makeup or costume design or all these, I'm like, holy cow, it takes a ton of people. And it takes a lot of different skills. And God has designed that the work that is done in his kingdom would be a team effort that involves the partnership of many people with diverse gifts. So, for example, if we're going to think about trying to reach an unreached people group, a people group in the world that has never heard the gospel, and what it takes to do that, it's the work, really, not just the person that proclaims the message to them. It's the work of this whole network of people that financially supports the missionary, that provides materials, those people that translate the Bible into the language that they're going to so that they can communicate God's word. It's the team of people that surrounds this missionary and prays for them and prays for those that they're going to bring the message to. It's really more web-like and interconnected than we often realize, the way that God works in the world and the way that God works uh, through his people. We like in this church to say that there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian But also, you really can't do Lone Ranger missionary work. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger minister. The larger working of God in the world is through the means of a community of God's people who work together together and offer their unique gifts and resources uh, for God's work in the world. And although the work isn't for our credit or glory, it's totally the work of God, and we have to acknowledge that. It's for his glory and not for us. I think that in a way we can think about this like movie credits. That when someone becomes a Christian through the work of a missionary, there are many names on the credits with many different job titles who have contributed through the work of God uh, to that person becoming a Christian or through that people group hearing the gospel message. God is the primary worker. God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who does his work in the world, converting people to Christianity and saving people. But he is a God who works through means. He has decided that he's going to reach the world with the gospel through people who proclaim the message and through people who pray for missionaries and evangelists and those people that financially support them and provide for their needs as they go and teach the gospel. Our God is a God of means. And he uses means through giving people diverse gifts and resources that those things would be used for his kingdom. So our resources, just like everything else, are given for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question that everybody knows, even if you're not a Presbyterian, is what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Most people have heard that one, even if you didn't grow up in the PCA or OPC or something. The chief end of man is the glory of God, and that includes all of the gifts that God has given to man. It includes all of the resources that God has given to man. Everything that he has given you and everything about who you are is designed for his glory and for the good of God's people. And like Gaius, we're to invest the resources that we have been given in the work of Christ's kingdom for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. 
We're to learn from how Gaius manifested his love in hospitality and in support for Christian missionaries and teachers. We're supposed to do the same. We need to engage in Christian work in the world through partnership with other believers. We need to come alongside people as fellow workers for the truth. Since Christian truth and love lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must support those who teach the truth. So although we have this positive example set before us when it comes to Gaius, there is also a negative example in the second half of John's letter in the guy named Diotrephes. So we'll see from this second section of John's letter that since Christian truth and love uh, lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must avoid pride, which prevents partnership. And I promise that alliteration was not intentional, but I love accidental alliteration, including that. God's people must avoid pride, which prevents the partnership. Thanks for catching that, Alexandria. Look with me to verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is another church leader, either in the same church that Gaius is in or in another church in the town, another uh, home church. And there's this string of issues with this guy. He doesn't acknowledge John's authority, for one, which, if you know, to, to, to push back against the authority of, a God, of, an, of an apostle, to reject the authority of an apostle is to reject the authority of Christ himself. Um, and, and we see that with people, and people who want to be leaders who reject the authority of Scripture— That's something that we see with Diotrephes. He's pushing back against the authority of Jesus himself by pushing back against John. We see that he's also gossiping and slandering John and other church leaders. And particularly in stark contrast to Gaius, who has been faithful to be hospitable and to support Christian missionaries, we see that Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and he goes even beyond that. He, he stops those who are trying to support them. and even kicks those people out of the church. So we see in Diotrephes the opposite of Gaius. We see the opposite of what it means to be this type of fellow worker in the gospel. But what's his primary issue? What's causing this man to do this? John tells us right away in verse 9. He says, he likes to put himself first. It's his pride it's, it's this self-centered approach to leadership that prevents Diotrephes from working alongside other Christians and from supporting the brothers in the work. And he probably actually rejected John's authority and prevented other teachers from coming in because he saw them as a threat to his own authority. He didn't want to hear from somebody else. He didn't want someone else to be able to come in and teach his people. It was a threat to him. He was seeking notoriety and power and not seeking the glory of God as he should. And Diotrephes' pride made his Christian in life, uh, Christian life and Christian work more about him than about God, and also more about his service of other people. Again, his pride made his Christian life and his work more about him than about God. In, in the business world, it could be strategic for you to put yourself first. To, to work toward your own advancement and promotion, to climb that corporate letter, even if it means self-promotion as you do that. I, I read an article about self-promotion. It said, truth is, 
in most companies, you're probably not going to get ahead by just doing a good job. To get promoted, you first have to promote yourself. The self-promotion and putting yourself first might work in the business world. It really has no place in the church. It has no place among God's people. We need to avoid anything in the Christian life that makes our life more about us than about God. Because if we, if we do that, if we make the Christian life about us and not about God, it completely destroys our ability to partner with other people for the glory of God. And there's a real temptation for Christian leaders to make their ministry about them, and particularly about their fame. Ministry can easily become about the books you've published, the websites you've been featured on, your number of Twitter followers, the big conferences that you have spoken at, or even just simply the size of your church. But ministry can also become about power. But the church doesn't have a business structure with an executive who makes all of the decisions and holds all of the power. That's not how God has designed that his church would work. And no one should ever go into ministry to try to gain power or to try to gain fame. And I think we should keep that in mind as a congregation as we move towards particularization, as we move towards establishing elders who are going to lead our church. We should want elders who don't put themselves first. Elders who care more about the glory of God and more about the good of living stone than they do about their own power, about their own fame. But this type of pride isn't just, I don't think it's just a threat for Christian leaders. And we need to see that. It's easy to talk about Christian leaders who make the Christian life about them and fame and power because, you know, most of us aren't, aren't big powerful, famous Christian leaders. And even if you are a leader in this church, it's a little church anyway, so no one's going to hear about us. But all Christians need to be aware of the temptation to make the Christian life about us. I think we can take just about anything that God has given us and turn it to make it about us instead of about God. And when we do that, it, it, it cuts the strands of the Christian web that holds Christian community together. Where are you tempted to make your Christian life more about you than about God and God's people? We can make parenting about looking good by having the best kids. We can make our job about us by chasing titles and money. We can go get so wrapped up in getting good grades in school that we neglect other people. And the examples could go on and on. We can take just, any, just about any part of our life and make it about us. But our life is not first about us. And when we make it about us, it makes us unable to partner with other Christians and become fellow workers with them in the truth. Since Christian truth and love lead to partnership in gospel work, God's people must avoid pride, which prevents partnership. John brings his letter to a close. He commends a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius is is probably the man that actually took this letter. He was probably the messenger that took this letter from John to Gaius. And he's commended first probably so that Gaius will receive him and receive the teaching that he brings and the letter that he is bearing. And also probably so that Gaius would support him. So that Gaius would welcome him into the church and be hospitable towards him. We see that John is giving Gaius another opportunity to do what Gaius has already done well in supporting the brothers. And like 2 John, he closes his letter by telling Gaius of his desire to come and visit him, to see him face to face, that he can talk with him, and he sends him greetings from other Christians. 
But what makes this last section about diatrophies so interesting is when we remember that John himself struggled with the same type of self-centeredness and pride that he warns Gaius and us about. Listen to this story from Mark 10. This is really interesting when we remember that this is the same John who is writing 3 John that's being talked about. This is starting in verse 33 if you're turning to Mark 10. You don't have to. You can just listen if you want. And James said, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. John and his brother James, they requested honor. They wanted to sit at at Jesus' right hand and Jesus' left hand in glory. And in doing this, they're putting themselves first. And as you would expect, the rest of the disciples got pretty angry. It says in Mark 10 that they were indignant towards them. I mean, if I was one of the 12 disciples and I heard that these two guys were off requesting to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, I would probably be pretty angry with them. But Jesus takes this moment to give all of his disciples a lesson. He says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christian leadership is not about lording your power over others. It's about being a servant. But notice the basis for this principle that Jesus gives. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ positions himself as the example of leadership for Christians. Christ is the example. And we're all going to imitate someone, right? None of us can escape that. We're all imitators. The big question is, who are we going to imitate? We should imitate people like Gaius, who dedicated their their work uh, to God and God's glory in the church. Those who partner with other Christians in the great calling to glorify God. We should find people in our church that are more mature than us. We should look up to them and we should see the work that they do and we should seek to imitate them. That's actually a good thing when God puts people in our lives that we can look to and we can say, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And parents, be aware that your children are watching you and the rest of us in the church, even if we don't have kids, the children are watching us in the service, how we worship, how we listen to the word. And children, watch people. Find people in the church, not even just your parents, but people who are mature and older in the faith and watch the way that they live and the way that they worship and learn from them. It's a good thing. We should do that. But at the same time, we need to be aware of not following the example of people like Diotrephes. We need to not imitate those who make the Christian life more about them than they do about God. Yet as we live our Christian life, we must also learn to be imitators of Christ. It's true that Christian humiliation, Christ's humiliation and his death on the cross it was far more than just a moral example for his people. He's not just giving us only a picture of selfless love, and some people want to make the death of Christ 
merely just a moral example. We have to affirm that Christ on the cross was taking the penalty for the sins of his people on himself that we could be reconciled to God and we must firmly maintain the priority of Christ's death as a wrath-absorbing substitutionary sacrifice for God's people. We can't lose that lest we really lose a lot of what Christ's death was for us. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't see Christ's love as an example for us, as something to be imitated. Christ is supposed to be imitated. Look, uh, Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Our great example of mutual love as Christians is to be learned by looking at Christ. Looking at Christ's love for us and taking on human flesh and coming to earth as a man in living perfectly on our behalf and dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. Christ's love manifests to us is the example that we follow. Our desire as Christians is to be Christ-like. We want to be like our Lord. And as we partner together in the gospel, as we support missionaries, as we support ministers, as we utilize all of God's gifts that he has given us for his glory and for his kingdom, we need to do that as imitators of Christ. Let's imitate Christ who came to serve and not to be served. Imitate Christ who gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we imitate Christ, we need to avoid any prideful notion of being better than one another because that destroys our partnership. But instead, rooted in the truth of Christ, rooted in the love of Christ, let's generously give of ourselves and our resources to do gospel work and to partner with those who do the work of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom in giving us examples that we're to imitate. Help us to not imitate evil, but instead to imitate good. Help us to see the opportunities that we have, too, to use our resources for your work in the world, and give us a Christ-like humility and selflessness that we would, in hospitality and in our generosity, partner with those who you have called to spread your gospel in the world. Father, we ask that our greatest desire in all of these things would be your glory. Would you be glorified in all that we do as a church? We ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.